0: welcome this evening to the Royal Irish Academy and our panel discussion on social media and democracy. I just need to do the fire escape exits. There are two behind you where you came in on the right and the left and one up here on my right-hand side that goes to Schoolhouse Lane. In the event of an emergency the meeting point is outside the Mansion House. So to start off this evening I'd like to invite up Anya Highland, who's the chair of the Social Sciences Committee.
1: Thank you very much, Pauline. Good evening. I am Kate Mila, founder of Galair. I am an authoring, publisher, and author. I am a scholar of communication and journalism. My name is Oonagh Highland, and I am chair of the Social Sciences Committee. And on behalf of the Royal Irish Academy, I would like to welcome all of you to this panel discussion on social media and democracy. How do we balance rights and responsibilities? I'd like to thank our panel facilitator, Helen Shaw, who is the CEO of Athena Media, and she's also a member of the Social Sciences Committee, whose idea this panel discussion was. And she organized, identified, and brought together this great panel of speakers, whom she will introduce to you now shortly. And I'd also like to thank Pauline McNamara because Pauline and her team, her tiny team, I think it's mostly just Pauline, for looking after all the practical arrangements. So I hope everything goes well this evening. And I'd like to invite Helen now to come and start from there. Thank you very (laughs) much. We're not moving. Thank you so much, Anya. And
2: thank you to Pauline for kicking us off and organizing us tonight. Thanks so much for giving us your time on May Day. And in some ways, We started talking about doing this event I think a year and a half ago and I thought it was topical then, social media and democracy balancing rights and responsibilities. But in many ways, every day you pick up a newspaper, if you still are picking up a physical newspaper, turn on a radio or you go to your computer or phone and you see your news, every single day in the last weeks it's been dominated by the substance of what we're going to talk about tonight which is, we've all shifted online. I mean, the Irish Times had a Behaviors and Attitude Survey out the other day, and they said, which is a nice way of putting it, is that Ireland is a wired society, deeply connected to digital technology, but also in a state of high anxiety about its own way of life. Because what the survey was telling us, and we kind of know it because we are living that, is that where 90% of us are using smartphones We're all in some way on social media, whether we're using it for communications or we're using it to book uh, facilities, whether it's Airbnb or our taxi. So we're part of this connected, wired society, but increasingly over the last couple of years, we've all become very aware of the fault lines and how in many ways we're in a society where content in newspapers or in broadcasting, the environments that I came from, I mean I started as a newspaper reporter and moved into broadcasting, they are highly regulated, we are used to the idea of how they exist in society and in a sense the principles of rights and responsibilities that they are embedded in, the right to know, the right to information but also the responsibilities of a publisher. And we have adopted and changed with the online shift We have also seen over two-thirds minimum of the advertising revenue of the media landscape shift online and in many ways take the rug from underneath those places which were our traditional storytellers of news and entertainment. So this last ten years when you have seen social media become particularly mainstream to the point that we now have vast global audiences. We have also seen the emergence of companies and in many ways Ireland is lucky that those companies are often headquartered in terms of the European, Middle Eastern and African headquarters are here in Dublin for Facebook, for Twitter, for LinkedIn, for Airbnb and also then we have Google, probably the most significant company that's affecting all of our lives every day, and also Apple in Cork. So we're a tiny country in the midst of this story. Our attitudes have changed our behaviours but also we're increasingly aware we're part of a global story around regulation. How do we balance the rights and responsibilities of things like privacy, protect our data? And some of the things that we've been looking at, I mean, if you take today alone, your headlines were showing you that government to fast track what's been called revenge porn, harmful content online. We also have paralleled with that the outcoming of Facebook's announcements yesterday where Mark Zuckerberg, who was dealing with the potential of a three to five billion dollar fine last week from the US FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, for their breaches of data. He was announcing yesterday, in that great quote which went everywhere, which, the future is private. That Facebook, in a sense, reacted and did a kickback yesterday about how they're changing from a public posting to much more of a private encrypted zone. And within that, it's always worth, from our perspective, if you think of the players that we're dealing with every day, Instagram, WhatsApp, Facebook, all the one company. So the level of horizontal and vertical integration in our economy and media consumption is quite significant now. And then we're in an environment where from online harmful content, this word that we're using, where the government Irish government has just finished a consultancy around that territory and also is looking at the introduction of an online safety commissioner that's been flagged for the last three years or so. We're in a discussion where for 12 months ago, what many of us have grappled with in our daily lives, GDPR, our data requirements has been implemented and then we're also in an environment that Ireland, because we're home, too many of those companies were now responsible for the data protection and the implementation of GDPR for all those billions of users. So there's so many aspects within the air on this and when we talked about this around social media and democracy, we're looking at several aspects. Content, is it harmful? What is harmful content and how do we regulate it? How does that relate to what we're seeing? Whether it's within crime, porn or in a sense some of the ways in which content has been used also to promote violence or subversive activity many of those things are topical we also then have this debate which has come around privacy and data which rolled out of what really is again barely a one year discussion from Cambridge Analytica and the story that the guardian broke carol cadwallader and the team broke with the guardian march last year about the fact that a British political consultancy firm harvested over 50 million Facebook profiles and really used them in election manipulation in not just the US and in the UK, but actually Cambridge Analytica was working right across the world, India, Kenya, Chile and beyond. So that idea of electoral protection is equally right in the center of this data protection but also how it's affecting our elections. And then we've seen in the last year, in many cases that we all know about it, how the courts have been affected by the ways in which we, as the public, now talk online about court cases that are happening in real time. And we've seen that it had a detrimental impact on the outcomings in cases in this territory, in the UK, and in other parts of the world. So this discussion about this wonderful phenomenon that is digital media and social media, and how we've all benefited from that. And we start from the basis that we're all part of this digital evolution of society and communications, and how it's enriched our world. But we're now, in a sense, having to grapple with some of the consequences of the mainstream within it. So, to talk about some of those aspects, we've brought together four great people to share, to share their ideas, their work their research and their experience. Because within this, we also have on the floor today, with you in the audience, I know from looking at the list, lots of people who also have experience and expertise to share with us today. So we're going to unpack this within the panel and the discussion, but I'm also going to leave room towards the last 20 minutes to bring in the floor because I really do see so many names and faces of people who have really vital aspects to bring to their story. But let me introduce who's with me now. And in some ways right beside me is Professor Brian O'Neill, who I've had the fortune of working with several times in the past, because while you know, I'm probably an unreformed uh, journalist at heart, I have a small footprint in academia, which is how I've kind of ended up on the social Science Committee with Anya, but Professor Brian O'Neill is now Director of Research and Innovation at TU Dublin, used to be DIT, but we're now getting used to calling it Technology University Dublin, and Brian's been really at the heart of that integration at TU Dublin of the different campuses, but he's somebody who has a wealth of experience around this territory of digital media and social media, and particularly around how we look at its impact in society and how we might create regulatory models around it or good codes of practice. And Brian particularly was involved for many years around the the topic and area of child safety online. But increasingly, much more so in recent years, across the broader spectrum of social media and digital media online. And I think one of the things that would be really good to start with would be to talk a little bit about this idea of regulation. You know, when, when I mentioned what we were doing today to some of my work colleagues who are under 30, their attitude is like, well, why would we regulate? Why do we regulate online? And in some ways, that beginning aspect of regulate or not regulate is still somewhat, you know, in the ether. And yet, in many ways, we've already begun to regulate, and we're in an environment internationally where that's increasingly becoming the norm. I mean, last July, the government started a process including setting up a council for online safety, which I think you're a member of, Brian. And I think what would be really interesting in the beginning, before we go to Eugenia, Gavin, and Maria, and bring in, in the beginning, a little bit of their work and research, is just give me a sense of what's been happening in Ireland about this balancing act between our rights to use and access information to use social media to express our opinions and views, and also now the very real concerns that are happening around that happening in an unregulated space.
3: Sure. Um, uh, Helen, thanks very much and thanks for the invitation to participate and uh, thank you to everybody for uh, coming along. Uh, I suppose uh, uh, given that we're all in this heightened state of anxiety, uh, it's good to talk through these issues uh, and uh, definitely uh, this is a really timely uh, debate. Um, Yeah, uh, my, uh, uh, I suppose my focus and my footprint uh, within this whole general area of debate has uh, a a, a quite specific position around uh, child online safety, uh, which is one uh, area of uh, development uh, in terms of, you know, it's uh, where Uh, experiencing or going through a number of different storms or crises Uh, and uh, Child Online Protection is one that has exercised policymakers, uh, researchers and uh, uh, advocates within the field uh, for really quite a long time Um, coming uh, I I think most recently it has been joined uh, uh, by a range of you know separate Crises around uh, information, uh, around uh, public interest uh, in terms of uh, uh, communications uh, and uh, regulatory uh, responses. So, disinformation uh, and fake news clearly uh, has been uh, something since 2016 has broke uh, broken on the world stage uh, in a very very significant way. And in terms of you know its impact,
2: because ironically Donald Trump keeps using the word fake news, which in some ways this is the, the pollution of, of the yeah. Twitter environment. And, is, is that we've we've delivered disinformation and then we kind of have that yeah, backlash, yeah, which is yeah. smearing all of mainstream yeah. media
3: as fake. And, w- and what I was going to say is that uh, you know, this is you know, there are a number of you know separate debates going on. Uh, hate speech clearly hugely is an uh, uh, area of, uh, of interest. Uh, 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 threats to privacy uh, and indeed in terms of um, uh, terrorism online. You know these are all uh, quite uh, significant uh, separate areas. Uh, where there is something of a convergence uh, around, uh, uh, called you know this uh, response to an anxiety, uh, a wake-up call that there is a need for something to be done. Um, and what in- are we
2: doing here though? I mean, if if the council was set up in July and we just had the consultation now on online harmful content um, and safety mm. by the government. Yeah. Give us a
3: sense of what the Irish government is doing. Okay, so uh, last year was the publication of an action plan on online safety. And uh, while I say, you know, these uh, uh, themes are running in parallel, it's important not to conflate them uh, because the uh, the solutions may, in fact, uh, be very, very different. Uh, But I think, uh, you know, uh, first up uh, and uh, some of my own uh, activity within this area, I chaired uh, the Department of Edge uh, Communications Group on Internet Content Governance, uh, and uh, that was uh, succeeded or indeed running at the same time as the Law Reform Commission's uh, Report on Harmful co- uh, Communications. Uh, so there has been a significant amount of, uh, uh, let's say, uh, investigation and discussion about the kinds of options uh, available. Uh, there's been perhaps some public impatience uh, about uh, the lack of activity, uh, uh, we are now some 20 years on uh, from the first uh, regulatory moves uh, within the online space. Uh, it's about uh, it's the 20th anniversary of a significant landmark report on illegal and harmful uh, uh, uses of the internet. Uh, uh, and that set out some of the initial templates. Uh, so now uh, we're uh, taking stock and uh, looking at things in different ways.
2: So the Minister actually chairs, say, that council that you're on, the advisory council, and that's that's met a couple of times. And what you're looking at is an act that will follow, in a sense, what the Minister... The, the, what Richard Bruton has looked at is then
3: yeah. that there's a We 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 have in place uh, a National Advisory Council on Online Safety, and that uh, kind of, uh, came from you know, some direct recommendations of our group on internet content governance, uh, and uh, then prefigured in terms of uh, the Law Reform Commission has looked towards the establishment of a digital safety commissioner. The action plan on online safety does try to bring together a whole range of actions uh, on a cross-departmental basis, because focus on the specific areas of online safety, uh, Uh, There are uh, a number of different uh, issues at play there. So that uh, council uh, is established now as call it a multi-stakeholder forum, as somebody had to use the term. Uh, so you know, we have brought stakeholders together uh, and uh, you know, that in itself is a very important uh, recognition. Uh, the Minister has separately brought forward uh, proposals uh, and uh, we know, uh, of course, there have been a number of uh, uh, private members bills and uh, proposals around what we should do. Which is where uh, this
2: one that we're dealing with today, which has being called in that subtext, the revenge porn or you know, in against Sexual harassment images being shared online—that's come from a private members' bill, which in a sense is now going to—but was
3: also—but was also recommended by the Law Reform Commission. Mm. So, if you like, you know, this, uh, there's an overdue uh, review of our legal provisions in terms of an updating and an internet proofing in terms of you know, that uh, the available legislation was not in place uh, to recognise uh, uh, an offence that you know clearly has yeah. uh, uh, caused significant harm. Uh, and uh, something that has been provided for elsewhere. So those kinds of measures are there. Uh, we have in place now, and this is, I suppose, you know, the, you know con- to contextualise you know to this discussion here. Uh, now, uh, you know, f- following a consultation period, uh, that uh, a proposal for an online safety act uh, would uh, address uh, specific uh, nominated. Uh, uh, categories of online harm. Now, what those harms should be, uh, the and uh, the nature of the response to them, uh, it will get us into some of the trickier detail of yeah. how about I've, how we go uh, around this.
2: In terms of the feasibility around that, which and we can look at what's happening in other territories and and come back to say the UK particularly because they've been moving rapidly ahead. I'm just going to bring in Eugenia now, so Professor Eugenia Siapera is at UCD, she's head of School of Information and Communication Studies at UCD, but formerly was DCU, and I would say was an absolute high flyer at DCU in many of the things that have been established at DCU, including the future of journalism and online, and also the anti-bullying centre at DCU which is ABC. So I think you're still a fellow at the Anti-Bullying Center. But Eugenia has now it has been working specifically around hate speech and around the incidents of what what Brian is talking about there when we talk about harmful content. I suppose your territory has been looking at some of the manifestations of that, what we see online. And I, I think, I mean, I, I've, I've read the, the paper and some of the earlier papers that, that you've been working on in looking at, particularly in Ireland as well, how we're seeing and experiencing what you would see as being hate speech in a social media context. Mm-hmm. Can you give us a sense about what are the, the, the kind of experiences that that came up through your research about what we're seeing happening online?
4: Yes, absolutely, um, and that gives me the opportunity to kind of like bring this uh, question of harm again to the forefront because it's not, it doesn't happen randomly, and it doesn't affect everyone equally. So when, uh, I, I, in my own research and generally when we speak about hate speech, there are certain communities that tend to get targeted much more than other communities, and, and these are uh, people of color and women who are disproportionately affected, and then of course all these other uh, marginalized communities in terms of um, other fa- demographic and other factors. But what we have seen in the context of Ireland has been uh, uh, that what is happening in online media corresponds with what is happening in reality. So these are groups that are discriminated against socially in the social context. And then we see that the same thing is happening online. But of course, um, it's much easier to map it into uh, studies in online environments because you have the the data that is there. So from this point of view, and I want to bring back the discussion from a tendency to kind of like exaggerate and and see it in terms of like a panic that is going on. What is happening in social media? I would ask, what is happening in our societies? Because clearly what is happening outside social media affects what is happening in social media. So the question is not so much, uh, a question of, of individual harm, but it's a question of social inequalities that our societies have failed to address. And then we see this happening in social media as well. So unless we basically try to kind of like address racism, address misogyny, uh, address homophobia, uh, we're not going to be able to resolve these issues. So we have to think of what is happening on social media also in terms of what is happening elsewhere. Um, it doesn't come
2: from nowhere. And exactly. It, and in some
4: ways, you, you
2: immediately bring up that aspect about, you know, how we handle it, because, you know, then if you close it all down and you stop any of that manifesting, it doesn't
4: go away. But you can't do it. Uh, that's what we found in our research. It's like the the Greek mythical monster of the Hydra. You cut one head, and then two spring out. So uh, this we have seen, especially in terms of Facebook, because they have been constantly updating their uh, policies in terms of of content. And then we see that uh, that they trigger immediate adaptations on behalf of people who have uh, a vested interest, let's say, or even random people who would be uh, posting these kinds of content. So it's very, very difficult to eradicate it using these kinds of um, uh, um, specific policies you have to look at it from like a much more macro perspective of how are we going to deal with racism, how are we going to deal with inequality, and then use social media perhaps to uh, um, maybe address this vision.
2: And maybe just to give us a little bit more of an example of what you, what you saw from your studies, yeah. you know, in terms of the case studies and when you unpacked it, mm-hmm. and as you say, you, you use that image of Hydra and the many heads, yeah. C- can you give us some examples from what you were looking at in the Irish context about
4: incidences or how they manifested then
2: in comment? Um,
4: I think this will be immediately recognizable to anyone who's using social media in the context of Ireland. So we have uh, a certain, um, we used a certain term called the trigger event. And this, uh, there you can see also the role of mainstream media, not social media. So uh, mainstream media would refer to something such as maybe uh, welfare, the housing crisis, Uh, the hospital waiting lists, and then you immediately have a pile on. It's the immigrants, it's the foreigners, it's the uh, travelers. Um, They're putting in the pressure on these systems. So, also other trigger events could be anything that has to do with refugees, with Islam. Uh, They would immediately create uh, uh, a series of uh, hateful posts addressing these people. Um, Anything to do with single mothers, for example, will trigger a lot of misogynistic contents. But when you unpacked it, were you finding yeah. it's a
2: small handful of people with multiple accounts targeting an issue, or did you have
4: a sense um, of what was the story behind it? There is uh, the, the this is the kind of like distinction between that Facebook is looking to draw now between organised groups and disorganised or ambient, ambient racism, so or misogyny for this matter. So what you have is like, there are certain people who uh, operate certain accounts, who would be involved in this in a kind of like an organized kind of capacity, but a lot of it actually comes from everyday users who don't even recognize their content is problematic. And if others call them out, they would say, oh, it's PC gone mad, or, you know, it's censorship, my freedom of expression. It's very, very common experiences for everyone. online, this is why it is so difficult to address. Um, And it comes back to Brian's involvement with with the the
2: digital literacy uh, network as well, which we will come back to, because in some ways there often is that sense, um, as we have talked about before, that when you talk to people they will often think that they have an almost parallel First Amendment, because they have watched a lot of U.S. uh, (laughs) procedural (laughs) films and TVs, and they will think that there is like. A First Amendment right that we're all operating on, but whether we like it or not, we're not. So I mean, we're going to just bring in Gavin there. So Gavin Sheridan is somebody who has been working in journalism and in technology, and started as a blogger in 2002, way back then, when it was almost like a cosy community where people knew each other, and uh, blogging really was that way in which ideas spread. And I suppose by 2008, Twitter had taken off and most bloggers became uh, Twitter activists and they talked on that. But Gavin went on to become a founding member of Storyful, Mark Little's um, digital news, innovative set- set startup, now owned by uh, part of the Rupert Murdoch empire. But, um, but Gavin was, with his colleagues, very instrumental in using tools which in many ways have become much more common now in journalism, data, mining and open source journalism and in some ways also using freedom of information and using freedom of information as a journalistic tool. I mean since then I suppose Gavin is now ex storyful, but he runs his own business, Biz Legal. And when I asked him what Biz Legal is, he said it creates cool tools for lawyers. But they also sound like they could be cool tools for journalists as well. But Gavin, one of the, the, beyond the many reasons it's fascinating to talk to Gavin, um, Gavin brings in a story w- which, which really is, is very topical for us when I, when I mention Cambridge Analytica and the impact on the electoral system because, I mean, Gavin, I think it's probably worth sharing what your involvement was, say, with last year's referendum with the Eighth Amendment and with the story that you were flagging publicly about there be dragons there and those dangers, particularly with Facebook, and advertisement and the manipulation of posts, but also, you know, things changed very radically as you began to get involved.
5: Yeah, so I, I guess for the last couple of years, I do Twitter threads and they get me in trouble. It's usually what happens. Long Twitter long, long Twitter threads, giving out about something or other. Um, but one of those Twitter threads that I did in, in 2017 um, was kind of analyzing that we knew that the, the, the abortion referendum was gonna happen, just the date had not been named. And it is to a Twitter thread explaining that our legislative framework still did not take into consideration what had happened in the context of the 2016 US election. And that the government had done very little slash nothing to address the, the, the kind of lacuna that exists around how you can fund advertising uh, via social media without regulation. Um, and. That resulted in a piece in the Irish Times that I wrote based on the thread. The Irish Times contacted me and said, "Could you put that Twitter thread into an article?" I said, "Grand," and wrote that in the Irish Times. And I basically made the same argument in a, in a far more coherent way, I think. And I said, "Well, we need to start looking at this now." that was now. about nine months. Yeah, so that was like September, the September 2017. So I kind of said, "Look, if you look at our legislative framework now, we have the Standards of Public Office Commission, we have rules around a political fund, political party funding, we have the Broadcast Authority of Ireland, we have the." Uh, the Advertising Standards Authority. We have a whole, whole range of, of bodies. And when you're looking at whether, and really the key question you're asking is, how do you run free and fair elections or referenda in the modern era? And is it possible, if you don't start legislating for this kind of stuff, that you can have free and fair elections or referenda? Because of the things, that, the, the types of tactics that we've seen now in a modern election campaigning, particularly in the United States. So when it came around to the, to the referendum, like, I mean, I was kind of saying we, we could, if we wanted, try and address some of these issues via emergency legislation, although that perhaps would have been counterproductive. Um, but at, at least as the, as the referendum date was announced and then it, it came along in, in April and May last year, one of the things that I tried to highlight on Twitter, at, at least, was to say to people, look, you are seeing ads on your social media accounts now and we do not know the origin of that ad. We do not know the origin of who paid for that ad.
2: Where the money's coming from? We we have and, and
5: we have no law that makes this uh, 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 you know illegal or, or regulates in any way, because we do have an existing bans on television ads in certain contexts and radio and. It's
2: quite regulated. It's quite regulated to, compared to say the US, are yeah. an incredibly regulated. Except
5: except the internet. So I was saying, well, the obvious thing that any actor in this situation is going to do is to put a very heavy focus on online ads or online communities. And ultimately that's what happened. So I kind of in order to try and kind of illustrate the problems that are inherent with this, I took one particular Facebook page and I said a simple question to ask here is who's behind this page? That's it. And and this isn't a paid ad going into Ireland. I want to know who's behind this page, but there's no laws that require them to declare who they are. And uh, during the course of a Sunday afternoon, because I was bored, I was just going through a real-time investigation trying to find out who was behind this page. Um, it turns out it was the no side of, of the campaign, working with a digital uh, agency in, in Texas. Um, and that resulted in, in I, I think, one of the, the main reaction I got from that Twitter thread was from people going, I had no idea, A, that you could investigate this way, which was interesting in itself, I guess, because people don't necessarily know how Facebook works but also that I didn't even know that, that this could happen. In other words, if anybody wanted right now, they could start advertising in this particular way on any platform, not just Facebook, and there's no law that, that regulates how that happens, which means that in a small country like Ireland with only four million people, you could have vested interest from other jurisdictions who want to see a certain result in the referendum uh, having, a, having a disproportionate effect potentially on the outcome.
2: And obviously, and and I should have said, and this is mea culpa since I I, I am involved in digital media, is that if people want to tweet, please do, hashtag RIA social media. We just keep your phone on silent. But I mean, to to roll forward, Gavin, what's really interesting about what happened is is you flagged it, nothing really happened, and in a sense we already all knew by that stage when we got to last April because uh, Cambridge Analytica had exploded and the whole fallout from that in terms of the discussion in Brexit referendum, and the US was there. And in many ways then, during the referendum, you started unpacking that, and things changed. I think what's really interesting is both Facebook and Twitter reacted directly to what or was Facebook coming and out. Facebook and yeah. YouTube.
5: Yeah, um, I, I, well, or Google more broadly. And I think, um, yeah. I'm not claiming credit for that, but I, I was trying to highlight the issue, and I think a lot of people uh, reacted to it including perhaps Facebook, because I think you recognize the problem And then Facebook took a decision to voluntarily say, okay, we're not going to allow any, any foreign funded ads in Ireland. And I, I was kind of making the argument at the time in the media that, well, that's fine, but that's a voluntary, self-regulatory type situation. We really should have had laws in place already, and if we're going to do it, we're going to, we really should do Obviously, it was too late by that point, but if we're going to do it now, we need to start having the debate right now about how are we going to do this? And, and going back to the original question is, how do you run free and fair referendums or elections in, in the context online, of, of an online campaign? Yeah.
2: And I guess just before I bring Marie in, because it's like a, it's, it's just really fascinating. You know, as we know, in a few weeks' time, we're all going to vote again on local elections and on the European elections. What's changed?
5: In the Irish context, uh, not much has actually changed. The government has set up um, a working group. Um, the electoral commission. So one of one of the things that I pointed out at the time last year was that, for, for its flaws, the UK electoral commission model was actually something that we we had often promised doing but never actually properly implemented. In other words, an electoral commission that is on a permanent, more or less permanent footing, and that you could subsume elements because, like ours or, is created every time we need it. Yeah. yeah. Right, whereas what really you should have is a, a a standing electoral commission that will be there for all local European referenda or, or whatever and that that would act as essentially the election regulator, a bit like the Electoral Commission model in the UK. So I think the government is gonna go down that road. Uh, It's not gonna be ready in time for the elections uh, this month, but it it certainly looks like they're going to go down this this, uh, path of perhaps an Electoral Commission model based on the UK model, but slightly stronger.
2: And obviously in the meantime, we've had the UK come out and say very clearly from the, the, the Select Committee in Parliament, that their electoral process is not fit for purpose after the examination of what happened yeah, like in the Brexit referendum. In the Brexit
5: referendum, you saw an awful lot of. I mean, you, you could imagine if, and this goes back to the core question again: How do you have free and fair referenda in, in a in a in a capacity like this? One of the issues that came up in the Brexit referendum was coordinated overspending above limits in the, uh, between elements in the, in the leave side between be leave and leave EU, and it was quite it was relatively effective where you could. Essentially, ship money over to another organisation and coordinate spending. Something else, and then those organisations get fined. Now, the electoral commission in in the UK would argue we don't have enough powers and we don't have enough ability to make people liable for these actions. That essentially, you would some could argue, made the election uh, the election result unfair or breached the kind of covenant you have at the start of the election process that says this will be a free and fair referendum. But at the moment, when when you look at it from an Irish perspective, you could take some of those lessons if you wanted, and I think. There's an opportunity to, in a small country like Ireland, to actually make best in class legislation in the online capacity to have a, a model for how you would legislate in this area that other countries could replicate. We could lead. Yes, I think so.
2: <laughs> so bringing in Maria Murphy at, uh, our, at the end there with us. And Maria is a, is a lawyer, a lawyer who's working in Maynooth and has written extensively around technology. Human rights, around surveillance, and in some ways, surveillance is at the core of all this because even if we give Facebook and company, all the other companies willingly, our data, there is an element of how it's used and what happens after there. And Maria, from where we are unpacking it now, we can see this discussion around harmful content. What is that? How can we define harmful content? This flowing of legislation that's beginning to happen the questions over the the implementation of things like GDPR and and data and privacy, and then this this big elephant in the room around the electoral process which, as I say, we all know is not really in any way sorted and yet we're going back into elections both here and across Europe. From your perspective, in looking at the online territory and how we manage some of these issues of rights and responsibilities, what's your starting point?
0: (laughs) But let's not panic as Eugenia says. (laughs) More directly, we've also seen some examples, some reports of social media companies harming their users in more directly, perhaps through the over collection of information or um, from the, the use of that information in some cases. But So, as we're facing all of these challenges, it, it's very natural to look for catch all solutions, one size fits all solutions that are going to save us and are going to save democracy. But we need to remember that conflicting rights are at play here. And of course, democracy is constituted by allegiance to these rights, rights like freedom of expression, as well as privacy, and indeed.
2: Maria, just on that, and we're going to broaden it out now, one of the things that that is often at the heart of this discussion, it's been raised in in Parliament in in the the UK, Uh, it's been raised in most parliamentary discussions around it, which is the concept of a right to anonymity. And in many ways, this relates to often when we look at what's happening online, when we see some of the, the outflowings that Eugenia's work is showing us, they're not always, but some of it comes from anonymous comment. Some of it comes from from that safe space that someone might have of being anonymous. And it's interesting within that 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 you know when that's raised and it's been raised here quite recently as well that that we should remove that right. That that it's also been seen as been quite a, a nuanced discussion from people like you. I mean, what's your take on is there a right to anonymity?
0: Personally, I think. Always look for the less restrictive means by which we can achieve these public interests. And so in the case of whether it's children, is it you know parents setting boundaries as to what they can access online, or indeed having safe spaces online that are designed for children? And perhaps there's less anonymity.
2: One specific law which is being introduced uh, in the UK, which was announced last week, is the access to porn online. And the route that they've gone, which which is part, again, that that there's been a huge level of research, reports, white papers that have come out around all these pillars of both fake information, data privacy and harmful content. But they're actually going to legislate so that you must, for under 18, verify The person and the age. I mean, in looking at that, because these are all things which are are in the ether here. What's your take? More data being given to the the tech giants,
0: yeah. yeah and not to So incredibly that might reveal about of or that is to their being, um, they, they turn to but turn away from and don't want all them
2: Okay. So <laughs> we're kind of unpacking some of the complexities of this, but just from Brian, because you've been looking at a lot of of good codes of practice and also what other people are doing. And like, while Gavin quite rightly wants Ireland to lead on this, and that would be great. I mean, plastic bags and smoking, we did it, we can do this. Is that what the UK has sort of been racing ahead, you know, and against landing on a lot of different decisions around uh, online content and online regulation in a whole range of territories. But also you're looking at the Nordic countries and some of the other models across. What are we seeing? You know, let's start with the UK. Ofcom, unlike here, Ofcom has uh, responsibility over both broadcasting and online and has been central to some of these discussions. Our regulator in terms of the BAI is broadcasting and we don't really have an online agency, right? So what are we learning from the UK example?
3: Well, uh, I, I think there's much uh, to, I suppose, uh, observe and uh, you know to assess, I, I, I learn. I'm not sure. You know, I think we could learn the, the lessons of just to say that uh, they aren't. They had legislated. Yeah. Uh, the legislation is two years ago, yeah. It's the Digital Economy Act. Uh, so July fifteenth. You know, a, 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 a first for. Uh, a jurisdiction yeah. uh, in terms of uh, setting uh, age restricted uh, content real, yeah. uh, 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 online and interestingly the regulator is in fact uh, our the good old film classification office uh, so there's a very interesting i suppose uh, trajectory being followed uh, in terms of uh, the uk approach which has been well-flagged, and this is one example, and I think it is an experiment. You look and assess you know, how this is going, but uh, there have been many other uh, kinds of signals. Uh, David Cameron uh, famously introduced active choice uh, so that every uh, internet service provider must provide uh, filtering uh, uh, on the network to the home, uh, and uh, subscribers must decide whether they should have uh, under-18s uh, access, adult contact, and so on. So these are going on, and these are, uh, I'm, I'm not making comment uh, in terms of Let's say the particular approach, uh, but uh, you know those are some of the ways in which uh, this is being mapped out in more detail in the white paper that the UK has published in terms of online harms. Uh, so I think that uh, will certainly inform our debate. Uh, and because, that just came uh, out
2: this month or last yeah. month, April. Uh, and following
3: on, you know, previously a green paper. So there's been a very active uh, uh, discussion uh, uh, from the UK around measures. Uh, uh, Intended ostensibly uh, to make the UK the safest place for a child uh, online. Uh, That's what anywhere. you're saying. Uh, so they're going to
2: have a regulator? Uh, uh,
3: uh, there is a, a proposals for a regulatory uh, function, uh, and where that re- uh, regulatory function would reside is uh, is a question to uh, to be decided. Okay. Uh, that's the UK, uh, and I should say again, in terms of you know my uh, active involvement within this is also in looking at uh, or participating, contributing to European uh, policy discussion. Uh, the European Union has been a significant force in uh, a variety of fronts, not least GDPR in terms of you know establishing uh, regulatory frameworks uh, that have uh purchase uh, right across uh, all of this uh but uh, you know, what was uh, the safer internet program which again dates back to the 1990 uh, 1999 uh and uh, uh subsequently the better internet for kids program which i'm involved in uh so you know, those have taken different kinds of approaches codes of practice uh, have been a, a a key instrument within this and uh, we're looking at uh, you know what are the different kinds of uh, uh, instruments that can be made available uh, there is, uh, again, an interesting sort of you know, success rate. Uh, some have been more successful than others, uh, but most recently in relation to disinformation is certainly one, and a code of practice in relation to hate speech and so on. It's
2: a code of practice for the platform.
3: Yeah, but they also they're, uh, negotiated codes of practice, uh, uh, which you know, can involve you know, direct dialogue uh, with industry, and then in terms of uh, how they are implemented, mm-hmm. how they are assessed, how they are evaluated or whatnot. But it does bring back just the issue that you raised in terms of you know, where this might come back in terms of backstop powers, as the phrase goes, and uh, who might operate those and who might have uh, those kinds of functions. Um, uh, uh, also, in the recent uh, consultation, in fact, you know, the, the, one of the key functions of the recent consultation on online safety uh, was in terms of the extension of the uh, European Audiovisual audio Media, media. As, as AV, AVMSD, as they, again the principal European media policy instrument uh, that we have progressed uh, beyond uh, the case where there are very distinct lines between television, uh, linear, non-linear, and online content, uh, so that we need to uh, extend that. So video sharing platforms, what's the difference between the content that you might watch uh, on demand uh, or on a a terrestrial TV? So So you have to have rules around this. So one of the
2: things in the consultation was obviously also framing, again, would the BAI become a super regulator and take on board the content aspects of those kind of services, streaming, online services, and then there would be um, a separate agency. I mean, part of of the aspect around this, I suppose, as somebody who's come up from print to broadcasting into online, is often to wonder why we keep creating all these separate rooms for content Mm. because content is flowing from one room into the other. And it does seem to me often quite bizarre that we'll have regulators broadcasting which is separate to online when in some ways all of these things are intermixed but th- th- these were these were questions that we've been asked in the consultation what, one of the things um, i'm just going to bring in uh, gavin on this as well is this idea of the publisher because i i think one of the things that again we grapple with when we talk about that aspect of how we regulate online content in this in our societies is do we recognize the social media players, do we recognize Facebook as a publisher? I mean, Gavin, what do you think?
5: God that's a big question. Yeah
2: um, I'm good for the big ones. But the answers <laughs> are yours.
5: Um, I read an article during the week about um, Facebook's internal reaction to the Christchurch video, uh, the live streaming of the uh, attack. And on I YouTube on, and on, on, on Facebook on, on, and on Facebook YouTube yeah. So um, what was interesting was it was kind of an insider account of the Facebook reaction internally. Um, they have a, a global team with one of the main, actually a, a former lawyer based in Texas, who was interviewed and, and he talked about uh, the reaction to it. I came away reading that story uh, not very impressed with what they were doing, to be honest, because um, when we were building Storyful, we were building a 24-7 newsroom to identify that type of content as fast as possible on any social platform and then to autom- and then to. Contextualize it as quickly as possible on behalf of other newsrooms <coughs> because that was our business model.
2: I mean, um, your thing was also to prove whether it was real or not as, yeah, to, as a service to, to, to other de- players yeah. like TV stations yeah. to so do that
5: back. Exactly, yeah, to, to debunk or to verify, contextualize um, breaking news content on any platform in any language. And I, I guess I came away from reading that piece going, God, Facebook, we're slow. Um, If I had the resources of Facebook, uh, from a technical perspective, including the data that they have internally, and including the human resources uh, that are available, I think things could have gone a lot better. So when I'm thinking about, when I was reading the piece, though, to answer your question, I was was reading quotes from lawyers and uh, internal policy uh, types, and I was going, well, they're actually behaving as editors. They just haven't named them, them as such. I
2: just haven't admitted so, it.
5: <laughs> so the guy in Texas who's quoted in the piece, I'm kind of going, well, he, sh- this is a five alarm fire, breaking news event, as we would call it in storyful, and he, he's literally, re- he should be ringing his team uh, if if they're in another time yeah. zone, like in New Zealand time zone, wherever they are in Singapore or wherever, and th- your job is to is to get everybody awake that we're going to focus on this, but his name is his name doesn't include the word editor, but essentially it's it's crossing a line between we, we don't allow this type of content on our platform, then there's a reaction to how we're going to do it. So it, is Facebook a publisher? Absolutely. Does it have editor-like roles inside its organization? It seems to. Does it still say it's not really a publisher? Yes. But it kind of is.
2: <laughs> Eugenia, I mean, w- one of the things that, that's really interesting to come into now is one of the things that, that Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook were saying yesterday when he said that the future is private, was that what they're also going to do, because I was flagging equally that Facebook is also WhatsApp and Instagram, but like this messenger and encrypted zone that's in WhatsApp, which probably most of us are using and and using and it's a hugely positive part of our lives, kind of significant things that are happening in both, you know, when we look at what's happening with online, both within algorithm economies, decisions which are being based on the algorithms, and also some of the stories that we're seeing out of that shift into where Facebook is now. I mean, one of the things I think I saw in your work was also some of these, what Maria talks about the human rights challenges, but the human right challenges of an algorithm-based economy. I mean, whether it's Airbnb or Uber or any environment where you can start to, and this has been often very contextualized in public debate now, when you can start to screen out certain people Certain races, certain ethnicities, and obviously, Facebook had that, that challenge as well in terms of its advertisement, which allowed you to do that quite specifically by using the amount of data to target specific genders, races, ages, and you, you can not see huge social impacts there. I mean, what, what's your take on that? Because your work shows a lot of evidence of mm-hmm. that.
4: Yes, and this is again where we have to link what is happening in social media platforms with wider societal changes, and in particular the shift towards data-driven decisions. So more and more now decisions are taking place on the basis of collecting data and somehow analysing it uh, so that it can provide um, decisions that are meant to be more objective, only in fact they're not, uh, because the, the data you collect in the first place is biased. But what we have seen is like the removal of the human factor there because it's meant to be like you know, more prone to errors or prejudices and replaced by um, uh, algorithms, but the algorithms are themselves equally problematic, if not more. So now, for example, in the context of the UK, we' have seen that welfare decisions are based on the basis of, uh, are, are, are taken on the basis of um, algorithms that flag out high risk to low risk areas. But these are, of course, mapped onto existing inequalities. So uh, uh, someone who's unemployed, for example, are meant to be are, are uh, seen as being high risk. So therefore, decisions then are taken on this basis. Uh, it, the same in the U- United States, for example. There was a uh, an investigative report by ProPublica that showed that um, the risk to offend, for example, is based on existing data about who offends in the United States, so it's definitely prejudiced against people of color, and so on and so forth. You have all these decisions taken on the basis of data, saying, oh, now we're not going to be prejudiced anymore because it's all data, it's all technology, it's all objective, only in fact it isn't. It's equally, or if not more, uh, biased and and problematic. You mentioned
2: something about the artificial intelligence in cars as well, because obviously everything, every algorithm is also a product of human
4: intelligence. Absolutely, and this is where, again, we see the question of inequality. Who is producing these uh, algorithms? Who is working for these companies? And I can tell you it's not people of colour and it's not women. So you, you get a system that reproduces itself, as it were, and only the the self that it produces is is based on inequalities. So in terms of this, um, the self-driving car, for example, the 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 engineers there used algorithms that were based on uh, white skin. So this car is much more likely to run you over if your skin is darker. So this is how, how big the problem is. Um, I, I saw other reports of algorithms for recognition of skin cancer and other types of uh, of uh, uh, skin-related diseases that is based on Google Images. Google Images contains only 5% of images of non-white people. So you see where the problem is now. Uh, on that, Gavin, yeah. Uh, on
5: that, yeah. On that point, uh, I had this weird experience last week where um, <laughs> I- I'm glad we're at the point where we're sharing <laughs> <the experience. laughs> I can tell. I can tell an anecdote. Um, I, I was, my dad was on on his iPad. Uh, my mom and dad spent a lot of time on their iPads. and. I, I hear this, I hear this uh they're both in their mid-sixties. I hear this familiar voice from the iPad, and I'm like, what are you watching? And I was like, I don't know, just this guy. And I said, Is that Paul Joseph Watson from InfoWars?
1: And he said he
5: said, I don't know who Paul Watson is. It just came up in my recommended videos. And I said, What were you what were you watching before that? He said, I was watching history videos about the Nazis. And I said, but so and I said, but do you know who this account is? He said, I don't even know who uploaded it. He just sees a video. Yeah. Right? So he had no context. He didn't even know what he had tapped on. Yeah. In order from the right individuals appear. on the side, yeah. He had no context in the UI to understand what he was doing. He didn't know who this person was. And I said, "Do you know who that person is? Because I know who that person is. I know." And this this uh, conspiracy theorist had, uh, was talking about. Uh, Maybe you should tell everybody in case we oh, haven't it's, had the joy of that video. It's, jumping it's one up. of it's one of Alex Jones's fellow travelers in the conspiracy theory world of uh, overlapping with the far right. So. I I said to my, and it was good to interrogate my father. I said, do you understand what's happening here? Do you understand that YouTube is based on the concept of accounts that upload videos? Do you know what account this is? And he said, no. And I said, can you show me on the screen right now, on your iPad, who uploaded this video? No. Do you see those videos on the right hand side, those recommended videos, based on this video? He said, yeah. I said, do you know how those were generated? He said, no. Now, I have to look over the shoulder. Of my mother when she's on YouTube, and I'm going, what is she watching? Now this isn't to say my parents <laughs> aren't, my, but my parents are smart people, but they of didn't, they, they didn't come up in a world where, that I came up with, which is I was, I've been using the internet for 25 years. Yeah. So I'm kind of going, my my mum, dad are not equipped for this, and my dad doesn't even know how to interrogate the YouTube video. Yeah. Now he could watch it and go, God, this guy's talking on the shy. But does that happen for everybody?
2: Because the thing we're talking about is that like we're really all turned into algorithmic products online when we use social media. So every every time we do something we're we're being mapped, we're giving data and we, we, we create this incredible level of profiling around it. I mean I was saying that, that the, the Guardian in Focus has a podcast where Astana, the presenter does this which everybody says which is where she's talking and setting up an interview with the with the tech journalist, but is she saying like I'm now convinced that Facebook are listening to my iPhone because every time I have a conversation, the ad pops up. He, of course, tells her that they're not, really, but there is that sense, as he says, because we're giving so much information and our friends and our networks, There is such a curve of information being dumped by all of us in, in our interactions online every day that we, most of us, even pretty clued in people, are not quite aware about what we've handed over to the tech company. Yeah, so, like, Maria, I'm just going to, like, from from the, within that, it brings us to, to also, I don't know whether people saw, but one of the other things in the ether in the last week is a big piece by Politico, which is an American, a U.S.-based online journal, quite influential, but they wrote a piece which headlined provocatively something like Ireland, the country that's blocking everyone in the world, uh, something like that. I mean, what Politico's article is about is that one, as I was kind of flagging in the beginning, that we're home to so many of these companies through their European, Middle Eastern, and African headquarters, and that through GDPR now, uh, we, through our Data Protection Office, are responsible for implementing that. I mean, it's quite um, a scathing piece, but it's also having a lot of ripple effect across the world in terms of how Ireland is seen in facing up to the challenges of both its dependency on these uh, digital economies in in Ireland, but also our responsibility as a data protector. Maria, what was your take? Because I know I know you, you read it and had a thought that perhaps it might be a little bit over the top. Well, I thought it
0: was a bit sensationalist um, in, in some respects, but I think it's, it's really, really interesting and important article at the same time. And I think, can you set that on the themes that Gavin and Eugenia were just talking about in this misaligning of incentives, and how um, certainly in the area of algorithmic processing, and this is, we have quite a lot of evidence for this as opposed to your YouTube recommendation, is that the commercial incentives often misalign perhaps what we see as the common good, and perhaps what the user would see as the common good a lot of the time. And in terms of the mis- misaligning of commercial incentives, the premise of And it is
2: only a year i think that's what gavin was also saying you know that that it's really only a year since we have gdpr and the whole aspect would be is it a little early
0: exactly. to so judge he began by saying how the whole world was watching ireland to see would we protect their privacy and that's something of a a misstatement to begin with because it's not really ireland's job to protect the rest of the world's privacy now it's also true that the european union is a global Going to be alive in absolutely <coughs> legislation that just came into force in May of last year and now. What we do know is that there's numerous investigations launched by the Data Protection Commissioner against basically all of the social media companies at this point. And we'll have to watch very closely to see how those play out. The there's a transition underway as well. Um, you know, We have traditionally had a very cooperative um, mediation led approach to enforcement data protection law here and um, which will continue to an extent that is built into the TGP board, but also we do have you know, a far greater of resource data protection commission now. And not only are do they doing more resources and many more people working with them, but we also have greater power than they have before you notably with the power to to uh, issue fines against companies. So uh, Gavin I what,
2: see, I Gavin, what's your think? I mean because in some ways the, the part of the premise about the political article and, it, and indeed maybe the dozens of articles that have been spawned globally in response to it since is, is the track record on this and that in some ways you know, what we're clearly being accused of is having a too cozy relationship with players upon whom we are economically dependent and therefore may not have the ability to have some of the discussions which need to be had.
5: Yeah, It reminded me of an article that was in the New York Times in, uh, uh, 12 years ago that called uh, Ireland the Wild West of European Finance, um, which was before the crash. Um, and and the, the, the article pointed to a lack of regulation happening in, in the finance uh, area in Ireland. When I was reading this piece in, in Politico, I was kind of going through the same process because I guess to some extent Ireland has a track record in relatively lighthood regulation in most areas, I would argue um and uh, a kind of a well we'll shake hands and we'll sort it out and we'll work on on codes as opposed to enforcement or laws and we'll come up with some solution and we'll work together with industry rather than so more more carrot and less stick um, i i think that perhaps i i agree completely that we're very early on in this this is this is a new law this is a new area you're going to see more litigation in the courts you're going to see uh, this evolve over time. So, in 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 a, way, in a lot of ways, I agree with Marie. It's, it's the the, the it's, so it's very it's very early doors, but
2: but you're more cynical.
5: <laughs> I tend to be more cynical because yeah. I'm a journalist, but that's yeah. the, that's where it comes from.
2: I mean, I'm I'm, I'm going to do do a little wrap with you all before I mean I'll, uh, chat to people in the floor as well. But there is a sense w- which I think we'd all agree is while unpacking some of the challenges that are here and the fact that there, there there aren't very many easy solutions. In order to, to look at the positives here, what, what I'd like us maybe to sort of consider about what we'd like to see happen, or ways in which we could we, we could consider which would be useful over the next 12 months, given that it's really only 12 months since Cambridge Analytica, GDPR and all of those things. Um, where we are I think as Maria said to me when I first talked to her, and it was a great answer, is not where we should be if we were to start this discussion. We're behind perhaps in having a very deep uh, public debate about this. I mean, as Gavin is talking about with his folks, which is typical with most of us, is that that the level of of digital awareness or real sense of understanding of what's going on is probably low, Um, Mm -hmm. but also in a sense that, that level of investment in research and development Brian, from your perspective, because you are in the midst of all these these high-end mm-hmm. committees and councils and meetings with policymakers, and so you've access to a, to a lot of thinkers as well. Have you a sense what you'd like to see happen <coughs> over the next year in terms of this territory? Because you've been very involved in literacy as being one of the tools to yeah. actually help.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Um, first of all, I think we shouldn't be overly hard on ourselves, uh, and I, I I put this on the sort of. European and then an international uh, uh, stage. Uh, uh, I recently completed. I did a mapping of uh, uh, European policies around this area, and uh, we're doing really quite well. What's really concerning is. Something like, you know, worrying the rest uh, of. Well, it, 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 there there are other questions of concern there because uh, you know, the European Union, uh, you know, is. Uh, a really important actor in some key areas. Uh, I, I am concerned about uh, let's say the degree of priority it has within the Digital Europe programme. Uh, we have uh, important uh, sort of key priorities, you know, for the whole European Union in the coming years. Uh, or the positions that the Parliament is taking, uh, you know, there's to get serious with this uh, it is going to need very concerted and very coordinated action uh, in terms of doing the right uh, kinds of things and uh, you know i uh, i believe in smart and pragmatic regulation uh, if that's a, 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 a good combination, uh, but it is about uh, identifying what the issues are and where the degree of investment in time and effort and resources uh, is needed to, uh, to move us on. Uh, so with, there has been discussion certainly around uh, the media space uh, in terms of, you know, uh, there's been a knee-jerk reaction uh, in questions around safety that there is a rush to regulation uh, that I think we should all be extremely cautious of, uh, because uh, these are not, uh, these are very blunt instruments to try and solve you know, complex uh, uh, problems. Uh, but I, I do hope that uh, post-European uh, elections uh, and into the next mandate of the European Commission, uh, that we do actually take up uh, some of our key uh, public uh, priorities uh, around uh, what kind of online space we're trying to create. Uh, and that means uh, a mix of a number of different kinds of solutions. Uh, and look to the the quality of our uh, regulatory frameworks, and some of them have worked re- very well. Uh, and uh, you know, I think Ireland is uh, you know a player, but within we're a piece of a much larger uh, jigsaw. Um, I would be broadly optimistic uh, that uh, you know if these debates uh, can continue on uh, and get the degree of uh, uh, of. Uh, Prioritization and uh, resourcing. We have high ambitions to be an economic player, um, but that requires a good social base uh, yeah. underpinning it.
2: Because we can't quite have the economy without sorting out all the social questions uh, and indeed the regulatory ones that come with, with that economy, it would seem. Eugenia, what's your take? What, what, beyond your, the research you're doing, I'm kind of interested in what you might have as being things that you would like to see happening in this space, both within <coughs> research, in thinking, in policy, because and again again you're cooperating and liaising with a lot of European researchers as well. Yes, so yes, in, in looking at how we, we go forward over the next twelve months. Uh,
4: well one thing that I would like to see as an academic is access, fair access to data from social media corporations so that we can perform it, Proper researchers, academics, and at this point in time, we don't have this kind of access.
2: Because Facebook just announced uh, through a, a third-party agency yeah. a huge layer of academic-funded yeah. research relating to its role in the elections in all the aforementioned countries, and it struck me again as being an odd way to do it. Because, yeah. you know, while that said, it was it was set up through an independent group, and and they won't have any role in in the research. Again, it seemed too connected to them for my liking.
4: Yeah, I, I share your, your concerns there. Uh, also, the whole thing is so much kind of like US-based, that it really does uh, raise questions. Um, they, so, the, they uh, develop this really very convoluted way of offering data to academics, but they do it so that uh, there is like some kind of like peer review process, but the peer review is based on US, I believe, universities that have a very specific way of viewing social science. Um, and that there have been already questions raised by, uh, by other academics outside the United States. And also, we've seen the kinds of projects they funded, and I mean, they are, fair enough, they're interesting projects, but really nothing that is not unexpected nothing that might be extremely critical, for example, of the role of social media corporations. So I wonder how um, open this kind of process is. But to bring it back to the the immediate concern that I have as an academic is that we have to produce knowledge that is independent, and and we don't have access to the materials in order to produce this kind of knowledge.
2: So independent access, but but also independent funding.
4: Yes, exactly. Uh,
2: Gavin, obviously your interest in this has been on the electoral side. Have you have you a sense about what you'd like to see?
5: Well, just to, just just to, to talk for a second about about that issue, I did, haven't watched yet uh, Mark Zuckerberg's FA uh, keynote from yesterday. But the, my takeaway from it was is, is what you said at the start, which is a pivot to Future privacy. Is private. A pivot to privacy. The question then is is that in the, over the next two or three years, is there going to be any data for researchers to access? Because, because if the if the data is encrypted and if it's if it's encrypted by default and it's closed groups that are on Facebook or WhatsApp or Instagram servers or YouTube or Google or whoever, um, a question that's going to arise is the inability of anybody to know what the hell is going on.
2: Because one of the impacts of, of, of what he was outlining, I thought, was that, you know, the, the, the challenges for democracy were, were even greater because if the shift is to encrypted uh, groups like uh, what the integration of Messenger and WhatsApp, that you we've seen that impact in Brazil, but we would therefore then have um, a completely uh, under the radar operation of information yeah. and, sharing. And,
5: and I don't have a I don't have an answer for that because no. I use encrypted messaging myself. I use Signal Messenger, exactly. and, and I I think um, when it comes uh, the questions you would arise from Facebook's pivot is. Okay, how, 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 how did they plan to monetize this process? Where will all the data live? How much metadata will exist? What will be going on inside those encrypted communities that nobody is aware of including researchers and including Facebook themselves?
3: Because
2: you, you and talked and to, sorry, yeah.
3: And notably then that they no longer have responsibility for what they don't know. Uh, it's, the, a, it's a really we, which serious Because you talked about the,
2: the presentation in the UK Parliament the other day where you, can
5: you mention that? Yeah, sure. Like the, it kind of riffs off what my dad saw on YouTube last week, which is that the chair of the, the Home Affairs Committee asked the, the, the head of uh, policy for YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter for EMEA. And he, she was essentially saying, I have an iPad in front of me right now. I searched for something, and the third recommendation after I watched one video and then another was far-right in nature, or uh, far-right extremism or white supremacy. How can you explain this? And at the end, and they didn't have a read explanation except to say that, well, the algorithms just the way the algorithms work was more or less a response from the YouTube policy guy. And then she said at the end, she said, well, we've had you guys coming in here every year for years saying that you're working on it or that you're doing something. But she said, I have my iPad out right now and I still have these problems. So what are you really doing anything or are you just telling us?
2: Because I mean, I think she was also talking about that, you know, closed WhatsApp groups actually with often maybe as many as 300 people in it. Um, having death threats and very extended Oh yeah, yeah. She, extended yeah.
5: she mentioned she mentioned a, a, a Facebook, a closed Facebook group with 30,000 members group. that she had 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 uh, included death threats against her herself, and she's and, and essentially the response from from the Facebook representative was, well, we have automated systems that monitor the kind of words that are being used in those closed groups, and we will act now in response to what yeah. you've just said which is, again, a piecemeal response that traditionally happens during the course of those kind of committee hearings. And where it comes
2: back to, which is what we're talking about, is that this has to move outside of the knee-jerk response of, of uh, commercial operations when, when a problem arises. Maria, again, in in looking at what you'd like to see moving forward, the, the aspect we're seeing already, we're talking about legislation that will roll through, um, we are looking at a process that's, that's under, underway here and probably more advanced in other countries, but what's your team?